Good morning, everyone. It is great to see all of you here this morning. If we've not had a chance to meet yet, my name is Brian Counts, and I'm one of the pastors here at this church, and I'd encourage you this morning to continue worshiping with me as we turn to Matthew chapter 6, verse 10 in your Bible or on your screen or however you get there. Uh, Matthew chapter 6, verse 10, we spent a couple weeks in verse 9. We're going to spend a couple weeks in verse 10 now this week and next week. Um, if this is your first time here with us, like Steve said, just a few moments ago, thank you for joining us. Thank you for being here. We look forward to getting to know you. Uh, you've come at a good time, whether uh, you're looking for a new church or you're new to campus or whatever it might be. Uh, we're having the fall kickoff, um, as Steve said, and also we're starting uh, relatively recently a new sermon series going through the Lord's Prayer, learning how to pray, and also trying to see what Jesus cares about for us as individuals and also for us as a church. And if you haven't done it yet, one way we're trying to learn to pray together as a church is to have a few different prayer prompts throughout the week. These have been going out the last few weeks, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, about 7.15 a.m. through our church app. So if you don't have that, you can go to any app store, you can search for it, you can download it, and just make sure you go to settings and notifications and make sure you are set to receive the prayer notifications. It's a great way to be able to pray together as a church at the same time, and even if you can't pray at 7.15, you can pray at any time. And each of those prayer prompts each week will be ways you can learn to continue to apply the part of the Lord's Prayer that we talked about here in worship with each other on a Sunday morning. And if you don't do an app, we have those also on paper form at the info table in the lobby. Now, each week we're together, we're saying that the Lord's Prayer consists of a greeting and then five requests. It's only about 50 words, this prayer. And yet we're saying it's not just a prayer to recite, But these six things, the greeting and the five requests, are six places from which in our prayers we can jump off from. We can begin to pray more expansively, for instance, about our Father who is in heaven. We can spend time worshiping Him, glad that He is a Father who wants to hear us and can help us because He's in heaven. We can rest in that, worship Him. We can remember, we can praise, we can even struggle with God. If you're a father who's in heaven, why? Right? We can do all these things, and now you're praying about all sorts of things. And then the same thing we saw last week with the first request, hallowed be your name. Those are just words, if you've grown up in church, that we just say perfunctorily, just as a matter of course, but so often don't even know what they mean. But we said to hallow something is to take it seriously. And so when we say, God, hallow your name, all of you, God, Help us to take all of you seriously, that your priorities are higher than mine, that you're more worth taking seriously than anything else in my life. And as we take all of God seriously, that might lead us to fear and trembling before him. It might lead us to worship. It might lead us to repentance. It might lead us to joy and to comfort. It can lead us to many things as we take God seriously, as we hallow who he is. This week, we want to move on to the second request, Your kingdom come, your will be done. And like I said, we're going to be here this week and next week. But let's read verses 9 and 10 this morning. We'll start at the beginning of the prayer, go through verse 10. And this is God's word for us. Let's worship him even as we read it this morning. Jesus says, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, 
Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray. Father, again, uh, we come to you and ask, Lord, for your help as we look at your word. Um, We come with thankfulness in our hearts for it. Thank you that you care so much about us that you would patiently teach us how to pray no matter how long we've walked with you. Lord, I pray that the next few moments would continue to help me to learn to pray, help all of us to learn to pray, that we might be a church who more and more seeks you, asks great things of you, and sees you work for your glory and our good through the prayers that we raise to you. And even this prayer right now, we pray that, and we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Now, just a quick reading of that verse, verse 10, one of the key words is kingdom, your kingdom come. And as we say that, we have to recognize that we here in the United States of America have a track record of not really loving kings, correct? We used to have one, not a big fan, so we got rid of him. Uh, Richard Pratt, if you know that name, he points out how you can see this in the state flag of Virginia. Do I have any Virginians here with us from far away? You know the flag, most of the rest of us might not. I think it's a flag from which we can learn something about the state of Virginia, but really all of us as Americans. Uh, I kind of love to learn about state flags. Uh, some of you know I've lived in, a, in a Colorado for many years. Uh, you can learn about Colorado. It's got blue for the blue sky, white for the snow. It's got red for the red rocks and yellow for the sunshine. Colorado loves its natural beauty, so they put it in their flag. Here in South Carolina, where I'm from, we love our history. We love the fact that we might be small, but we've been first in a few things, and we were first to defeat the British, and so we took the symbol of that battle, the palmetto tree, and we stuck it on our flag. And a moon? No, it's not a moon. Go look it up. It's not a moon. But I digress. You can learn something about a state from its flag. In Virginia, you can learn about it, and you can learn about us as a country from it. It's a blue field with the great seal of the state I mean Commonwealth, forgive me Virginians, Commonwealth of Virginia. On this seal there is a female figure of virtue. And she stands there in a posture of victory. Because in her left hand she holds a sword of authority. And in her right hand she holds a spear pointed down. She's won. And she has won because her left foot is on a prostrate horizontal man lying defeated. This man has a crown off to the side. He's clothed in purple because it's the color of royalty. So she stands there with her foot on the dead king. That's how we feel about kings in this country. And underneath in Latin, it says, thus to all tyrants. Subtle. No. It says something not just about us and our politics, I think it says something about us as people, doesn't it? Be we Americans or not, there is a streak in all of us, liberal, conservative, whatever tribe you're in, that says, I want to be in charge in my personal life. I want to call the shots. I want to be king. And we see it because we want to define who we are. We want nothing and no one to tell us our identity. We want to be able to say, this is who I am. No one and nothing else can tell me my identity. And we want to say what we can do. 
We want to be able to say, nothing and no one else can tell me what is right. Nothing and no one else can tell me what is the right thing to do. I get to decide that for myself. We don't like kings. We want to say who we are, and we want to say what's right for us to do. But do you know, and I hope you do, and if you don't, you're not paying attention. That goes badly for us, doesn't it? So much of the pain and relational difficulty in your life, not all of it perhaps, but a lot of it can be traced to the fact you want to define who you are and you want to decide what's right for you in that moment. We want to be kings and it doesn't go well. And that's what the church is all about. It's a place for people who know it does not go well when they try to call the shots, that they have tasted how bad that can be. And so because it goes badly for us when we try to be king, I think praying this second request of the Lord's Prayer is actually good news. God, your kingdom come. Your will be done. Which is to say, God, not my kingdom come, not my will be done. So I want to look with you this morning at how it's good news, why it's good news. First, we're going to look at the fact that we'll never be king. You and I will never be king. Second, therefore, we must bow to the right king. And then third, pray that his will be done. We'll never be king, so bow to the right king and pray his will will be done. Now first, like I said, we'll never be king. And you're thinking, well, of course, I'm never going to be king. I'm not part of any of those families where I could become a king. And yet we need to acknowledge right off the bat Even as we talk about kings and authorities in our lives and who gets to be in charge of us and our destiny and our identity and our choices, we have to admit that we live in a time where to say that there is a God who is a king, there is a God with authority, we live in a time where that sounds antiquated, backwards, maybe a little bit laughable. That's not a real popular notion today, which is strange because Throughout history, most human civilizations have sought to build their social order on their sacred order, right? But now we're living in a time which says sacred authority, divine authority, God is king. That's a joke. It's an illusion. Maybe it's real, maybe it's not, but that's a personal choice. And so we're left to build a social order on self. Because once you take away the divine, what's left but you, And so we have to build a foundation, and we say, okay, we're going to build our foundation on self. The self is sovereign. The self is free. The self gets to decide who it is and what is right for it to do. Each individual, we're told, gets to decide their own choices in morality and destiny and identity. And that might sound enlightened. It might sound kind. But of course, we have to ask, can it work? Will that really work? Can you build a social order without a sacred order? Can you build a social order on self? And I would argue it can't work primarily because you and I have to live for something. Each individual has to live for something. And when you and I live for that thing, we are enslaved to it. Whatever you live for is in charge of you. And as soon as you can not live for something, you can be free. But we can't. We have to live for something. That thing, it could be a country, it could be a cause, it could be a career, 
It could be a person, like a family member, a spouse, a child, maybe a boyfriend or girlfriend. The thing you live for could be that desperate search to feel worthwhile. So many of us are so terrified that we might not be worth anything that saying that we are and finding a way to be worth something rules our lives and we live for it. It could be a search for peace and relaxation. That's what I have to have and I'm going to live for it. Or it could be just living to have control. Living to have control. And those things that we live for, all those things I just listed, when we begin to live for them, they kind of reward us a little bit, don't they? If you live for a career and you get that first promotion, you're like, I think this might work out. If you live for your career and you build a business and it becomes successful, you think, hey, this is working. If you live for a person and they say, you're great, I need you, you're like, yes, this is working. I'm being rewarded. I'm living for this thing and it's helping me. And on down the list we could go. If you live to be in control and you seek to control something and it works out, you say, see, I need this. It works. But when we live for it, it becomes the de facto authority in our life. And when it says jump, we say how high. What is it you live for that when it says jump, you say whatever it takes, I will do it? Is it one of those things that I just mentioned? What is it you live for? What is in charge of your life or is it in charge of you? What is the thing that you live for to work for now or in the future that maybe is rewarding you a little bit? What's going to happen? All of those things cannot keep rewarding you. They will all fail you. Country, cause, career, living for a person, living for a thing, living for control, it never works. It always falls apart. And when it does, like those who aren't that smart, we keep doubling down and trying harder. I'll get it to work again. It worked one time. I'll try harder and harder. And yet now we become not free. We become a slave to this thing. You see, whether it's power, we can say, is that really going to work out for you? Are you really going to be the first person who's in charge of everything in your life, who doesn't have something come into your life that you can't control? No, you're not going to be the first one. I'm sorry. If you live for success, are you really going to be the first person to be successful, no matter how you define that, in every area of your life, whether that's in dollars or titles our number of relationships, or the right relationships, however you define success, we won't be the first person, sorry, who has all that success that we need and that we want. You see, desiring those things might not be bad. Desire is not a bad thing until it's your master, until you try to live for it. And then you'll realize, I'm never going to be king because I have to live for something. And when I do, it has me. And so if we're going to live for something, if we're never going to be king, then we might as well bow to the right king. This is our second point, bow to the right king. And again, back in verse 10, Jesus says, pray to our Father in heaven to bring his kingdom. If that's what we're to pray, if that's our jumping off place, what in the world does that mean? What does Jesus mean when he says, pray for God's kingdom to come? Well, we can look back in this same book of Matthew, that we read these words, and we can find that this is not the first time Jesus teaches us about his kingdom. Back in chapter 4, not that far back, uh, we're told that Jesus traveled around proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. He proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom. 
Gospel, you might know, means good news. Jesus went around proclaiming great news, the kingdom of God. And you can say, how's that good news? We're going to spend the next two weeks, today and next week, talking about how the kingdom is good. Really, next week, we're going to talk about how the kingdom is good news. But today, what I want to focus on is how is this king good news? Because if a kingdom is going to come, it's only going to be as good as the king. And so if you and I are going to pray for something, we have to want it. And if you're going to want the kingdom of God, you have to see how good it is, but you also have to see how good the king is. So what kind of king are we talking about when we say, your kingdom come? This king, our Father in heaven, bring your kingdom. This king is nothing like the human kings and the human authorities that we dislike. Nothing at all. Because whether it's a king or whether it's a boss or a teacher or a parent, what happens with human authority? He or she begins to use that authority, not for the ones under authority, but for themselves. And that's why we dislike human authority, be it kings or teachers or bosses or whoever it might be, because they used their authority for themselves, right? And you can think about any human king that is disliked throughout history. They use their people for their own plans and prerogatives and priorities. The people become just grist for the king's ambition. He says, not your will, O people, but my will be done. I'm the king, right? And when that happens, it tears everything apart. And that's easy for a human authority to say, in this case a king, because they're born into that position. They're given that. They're trained for it. But what we need to see with Jesus as king is that he had an even greater claim on authority than any human king ever had or any human authority ever had. He had a position as the Son of God. He was co-equal with the Father and the Spirit. He was the creator of all things. He's at the Father's right hand with all authority and power. That's his position. And then his subjects rebelled against him. Now, any regular authority would say, it's time for me to exercise my rights as authority. It's time for me to exercise my privileges and get this rebellious group of subjects back in line. But Jesus as king doesn't do that. Instead of coming and announcing his position and his rights, he in a sense hides them. He doesn't stop being God, but he becomes a man. He becomes a man not in a palace, not with authority, privilege, and power, but a poor man, a traveling man, going around, and one who, this is so perfect and beautiful, one who kept the law. He gave the law, and then he didn't say, I'm above the law. No, he said, I give it, and I'll now be under it. I will keep it perfectly. I will love God perfectly. He loved God with his whole heart, soul, mind, and being, doing everything God commanded, and not just doing the right thing, but doing it for the right reason. Can you imagine always saying the right thing for the right reasons, always doing the right things for the right reasons with a heart of love for God, and loving people around him perfectly, serving them, not taking the high position, but the low position, washing their feet even. 
the Son of God, the Prince of the universe, the Creator of all things, loved others perfectly, even to the point of wrapping a towel around his waist and washing their dirty feet. And then he was willing to die, but to die as one who had not kept the law. And so the wrath of God for everything wrong that any Christian, any of us have ever done, was poured out on Jesus, poured out on him on the cross. Physically, it was awful. Spiritually, it was awful because he was separated from God. And the night before it was to happen, do you remember what he prayed? Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. God, I know you and I have planned this out, but now that I'm here, the night before it is to happen, if there's a plan B, can we go with that? Because this is going to be harder than I thought. But then what did he say? Not my will, but your will. Jesus prayed, God, not my will, but your will. The one who had all power and authority laid it aside and said to his father, not my will, but yours. And he goes to the cross and he's executed by his own subjects, dying in their place. And then, of course, we know rising to new life as well. And folks, that makes him the right king. If you and I have to live for something, and we do, and that thing then controls us, then we need to live for the right king. And everything I just said makes Jesus the right king to live for. Because everything else that we live for, like we said, will crush us. It will disappoint us. Except for Jesus. Except for Jesus. Someone once said, um, Becky Pippert says this quote. It's one of my favorite. You'll hear it a lot the longer I'm here. She says this, If you live for people's approval, then you are enslaved to what they think of you, right? If you live for power, you're a slave of power. If you live for your own independence, you are a slave of your independence and you can't commit to anyone. But one thing you need to realize is that none of you belong to yourselves. Whatever you live for is your master. And here's the advantage of Jesus Christ. He is the only Lord and Master that if you get Him, will fulfill you. And if you fail Him, He's died on the cross for you. That's what makes Jesus the right King. If you get Him, He fulfills. And when you fail Him, He died for you. Every other God that we live for, every other thing, when we fail it, will crush us. Jesus says, no, I've died for you. She goes on to say, human power can't do that. Your job can't do that. Romance and love can't do that. And the boys at school can't do that. Jesus is the right king. He's the king for those of us who know that we're terrible kings. For those of us who've known that we've tried to be king and it hasn't worked, Jesus says, I'll die for you. For those of us who can't get it together, he's the king who prays, not my will be done, but God's will be done. And therefore, thirdly, we pray for his kingdom to come. We pray for his kingdom to come. Like we've said, these are jumping off places in prayer. So what are some things as we begin to pray, God, your kingdom come, your will be done? What are some things that we then begin to pray about? What are we jumping off into? Well, first, we're giving the king our cares. You're coming to a king who's saying he's in charge. He's a king. 
We've said he's a father in heaven. And so one thing you can do is make a list of all those things you're anxious and worried about. All those things that you pretend in front of others like you're not worried. It's because you don't want to look worried. You don't want to look anxious. So make a list of those things. Those things that feel like they might crush you sometimes when we're alone. The stress and anxiety can feel overwhelming. Physically, if you need to, make a list. Write those things out. And then push them back across the table at God and say, they're not mine. I can't do it. I surrender my cares to you. I cast all my cares on you. I give you my burdens. Those things you're worried and stressed about. Those certain outcomes that you want to control. God, I have to have a certain set of grades. I have to find a certain kind of spouse. My kids have to turn out a certain way. Something has to come out the way I want it. Give those things over to him. God, would you take charge of this? Would you bring your rule and reign in this thing that I can't control? Give the king our cares. We also jump off and begin to pray God's kingdom come as we give the king our obedient hands. Give him our cares and our obedient hands. Now, sometimes in life, it can be hard to know what God wants us to do. God, who do you want me to marry? Where do you want me to live? I can't open the Bible and find a verse that tells me what to do. But sometimes it's easy to know God's will because we can open the Bible and he says, love me and love others. That's my will for you. He gives us a law that says, honor your father and mother. I know what to do. Don't murder, don't steal, don't lie, don't covet. I know what to do. He tells us what to do. And so we have to give this king our obedient hands. But all of us have places in our lives where it's harder to obey than others. And where it's hard for you to obey might not be the same place that it's hard for someone else to obey. And so part of what it means to pray, God, your kingdom come, your will be done, is again, you can physically make a list or make it on your phone, on a note. God, where is it hardest for me to obey? And then begin to pray about those things. God, your kingdom come, your will be done. Not my will, not what I want, but what you want. And that could be in an area of generosity and money. It could be in an area of sex and comfort. It could be in an area of your speech and how you talk about someone when they're not present. And you give God that action. You say, not my will, but yours. This is at least a prayer for sanctification, for growth to be more like Jesus, right? This is at least that kind of prayer. We give him our obedient hands. Then we don't just give him our actions. God, help me to act right. We say, God, help me with the heart behind my action. Why is it that I struggle in that area? What is it that I'm really seeking? What is it that I have to have? And Jesus, how are you better? How are you more fulfilling? How can I trust that? It's impossible to please God without faith. So how can I trust it such that it changes my actions? We give the king our cares. We give the king our obedient hands. And then also as we jump off and pray, your kingdom come, your will be done, we give him our open hearts. We give him our open hearts. Because like we said, there's places in life, more so than others, where you want to control the outcomes. What are those places for you where you feel like I've got to have a certain outcome? And again, it could be any of those things we mentioned, one for your kids, or it could be whatever is for me after school, or it could be something that you want to see happen, a goal you've been working for. I want to control this, and I'm scared of uncertainty. You don't have to raise your hand, but like me, are you scared of uncertainty? 
You want to eliminate all the uncertainty that you can and control, therefore, as much as you can. But to pray His will be done is to say, God, here's what I want. I pray you would do this. I pray for a certain outcome for my kids, or I pray for a certain outcome for my career, or I pray for a certain outcome for my family. But, like Jesus prayed, not my will but yours be done. This request, as we jump off and pray, isn't saying don't tell God what you want. Don't bring him the desires of your heart. It's just saying also surrender them. Because his will, whatever it might be, whether he agrees with the outcome you desire or not, his will will be better. And now sometimes you and I might pray for something, or you might know someone who prayed for something, and it didn't go the way they wanted. And it shook their faith. It made them question God. It made them walk away from God. Or maybe that's you, and you said, I just can't believe I would ask God to do such and such in the past, and he didn't, and it just throws everything into question. And if you've never been there, you will be. But in those moments, many have rightly said, and it's true, we have to remember that if we have a God who's big enough to be mad at because he didn't do what we wanted, but he could have, we have a God who's big enough to be wise enough to do something better than we can imagine in a way we couldn't see. If you can be mad at God for not acting the way you think he should have, you have to admit he must be big enough to have good reason to do it that you can't see. And you have a God who you can also trust because he took the same medicine himself. Jesus said, not my will but yours, and he still went through with what God wanted. And when he did, it brought more beauty and more blessing and more grace and more flourishing for more people than if he had done it the way he wanted to the night before. And God says, when I don't give you what you ask for, maybe I give you something antithetical to what you wanted. Not only am I wise enough, but I'm loving enough to do in those moments something smaller but still similar to what I did through Jesus when he said, not my will, but yours. God is always for us bringing about the good. He's always for us bringing about what is best, even when we can't see it. And he proved it by what he did at the cross. And so we can rest in that as well. And so we pray for his kingdom to come, his will to be done, not ours, as we jump off into this second request. Thinking about these things, I was reminded recently about a story that one of my old pastors told. He was my pastor during the years I lived in St. Louis, and because he was in St. Louis and because there's a seminary there, if you've been around our circles, a lot of the pastors you know probably had this man as a pastor. His name is Wilson, his wife Pam. If you've been around in our circles, you've probably heard this story because it's a legendary story from Wilson and Pam. But the story goes like this. In the late 1960s, Wilson was studying abroad in Edinburgh, Scotland. He was getting his PhD. He and Pam were newly married, and he got to go as an official, as an official delegate to the Assembly of the Church of Scotland to represent his church in, in the United States. They were having their annual Assembly of the Church of Scotland. They wanted someone to represent this sister church in America. And so, if you're a church nerd, that's pretty cool, right? 
he gets to go and represent his home denomination to the Church of Scotland. That would be cool in and of itself. He's a young married man studying in Scotland. He gets to go to the assembly of the Church of Scotland. But that happened to be a year when Queen Elizabeth was going to address the Church of Scotland, which hardly ever happened for the monarch to go to the Church of Scotland. Because if you know your history, there's you know, some bad blood there, right? So she's going to go and address this church, this assembly, this national assembly. That would be great. But here's where it gets better. All of the delegates to that annual assembly of the Church of Scotland were invited the night before it started to a garden party at the Queen's Palace in Edinburgh, at her official residence. She's invited all the delegates to this church assembly to come to her house with her and Prince Philip and meet them. Now again, you're a newly married couple. You're studying abroad. Now you get to go meet Queen Elizabeth and Prince Philip. If you watch The Crown, you can just picture it, right? But here's the fascinating part of the story. They got the invitation. It comes. It's beautiful, right? It's not just, you know, Times New Roman slapped together. It's a beautiful invitation. And they read it. And when you and I send an invitation, we say, your presence is requested, right? Wilson and Pam got an invitation from the queen that said, your presence is commanded. How do you like that? Your presence is commanded. Now, I don't think Scotland Yard would have gone out after them if they didn't show up. She's not that kind of queen, right? But even just that kind of invitation gives us a little hint of a monarch's power. And it's the same when we pray your kingdom come. We're saying, God, you are the monarch. You are the authority. I am not. I humble myself before you. What I love about this story is it wasn't a command just to come. It was a command to come to a party. And it wasn't a command to come to her party and, hey, bring your own food, Wilson and Pam, because I'm the queen and I'm not footing your bill. Bring your own drinks. No. It was a, you're commanded to come to the party and I'm paying for it. I'm the queen. I'm going to have some good food there for you to eat. I'm going to have some good drink for you to share in. It's a command to come to a party, all expenses paid by the king or the queen. And when we pray, God, your kingdom come, that's the kind of king we're coming to. But far more than Queen Elizabeth and Prince Philip could ever pull off. He's saying, come to my party. I'll provide everything you need. You've got Sin in your background, you've got shame, you've tried to be king in your life and it hasn't worked out? Don't worry, I've died for you. I've covered that. I've given you a robe of righteousness to come into my presence. I've given you everything you need. I'm the right king. And so pray for my kingdom to come. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your incredible grace. We thank you for your incredible, perfectly exercised authority for us. We thank you that you're in charge of all things and that you're in charge of all things, yes, for your glory, but also for our good. And whatever happens, be it our will or not, we thank you that it's always bringing about the best. Lord, I pray that you'd continue to teach me, teach all of us as individuals, teach us as a church to pray that your kingdom would come because we love this king. Lord, I pray that you would grow our worship of King Jesus. I pray that you would grow our love of King Jesus such that we cannot help but beg his kingdom to come. We pray it in his name. Amen.